Thanks for listening to The Rest is Politics. Sign up to The Rest is Politics Plus to enjoy ad-free listening, receive a weekly newsletter, join our members' chat room and gain early access to live show tickets. Just go to therestispolitics.com. That's therestispolitics.com. Hello and welcome to The Rest is Politics with me, Rory Stewart. And me, Alistair Campbell. This is great cliche, obviously, that a week is a long time in politics. Uh, in our case, we just recorded this podcast when the news of Sajid Javid and Rishi Sunak's resignations broke. So we recorded a brand new podcast, which if you haven't listened to, please do. It's called Sunak and Javid Resign. And now we're putting out the podcast that we were supposed to put out in the first place. And you'll see in it that we're touching actually on what I think are probably even bigger and more fundamental issues in the background of it. We do talk about resignations and the way in which Downing Street handles resignations, looking at Alistair's experience. But we also get on to really meaty issues, get on to Brexit, the way the Labour Party is trying to define itself. More fundamentally, though, we look at China and Taiwan and the global recession and the way in which that really could be the thing that determines our next five or 10 years in a much more fundamental way than we've begun to understand. But before we get on to that, and even before we get on to Elvis Presley and Alistair Campbell's love of Elvis, time to bring in Alistair and how he might react if you were in Downing Street and Chris Pincher behaved in the way that he did. The news that just as soon as he was hoping he was clawing it back a little bit with his G7 trip and his stuff on Ukraine to then see this news story with Chris Pinter. I mean, just to flip it around for a second, if you were in Downing Street, how do you think people react when a story like that comes in through the door, just as they're trying to get things back on an even keel? I think the first thing to say is that people start to feel a little bit sick. Um, You know, you have that sinking feeling in your stomach when you think you're just coming up for water, you're just coming up to breathe. And whoosh, something else hits you. But the thing that we know about this guy, you and I have both said this in our different ways in the last few weeks and months. We just know that there'll be another scandal along once this one dies out. And what I find incredible, I mean, I don't have any doubts <clears throat> about him. You don't have any doubts about him. And by the way, our men's health interview has been published today. And my God, you come up with some strong, strong stuff about Johnson. I mean, evil is a very strong word, Rory. Evil, you say. But let's come back to your views of him. But what I think you then feel is you think, well, I certainly used to think when we were in the middle of a kind of, you know, a shitstorm, you have to get to the facts. You have to find the facts. Mm. And you have to then make sure that everybody understands the facts. So I don't know what goes on inside there at the moment. I really don't. So just, I mean, the, the one I remember is Ron Davis, which, mm. uh, which was terrific, wasn't it? The son... No, it was not terrific. <laughs> it was really not terrific. The, it was the opposite of terrific. Just, just remind listeners, the Sun did a story in which they said that he'd been seen coming out of a famous gay sex haunt on the M4. He said he hadn't visited the area for 15 years. And then he changed his mind and said maybe he had been there, but he'd been watching Badgers. No, it's that? worse than that, Rory. It's actually worse than that. <laughs> oh, you've jumped, you've jumped forward. <laughs> the, ori- the initial story was what, much worse than that. We got approached by the police before the press were even onto it and said that there'd been this incident on Clapham Common where Ron, for reasons unknown to himself, was wandering around Clapham Common and he got into the back of a car with a man that the police described as a raster. And then they sort of, you know, cruised around for a bit. And we it was impossible to get to the truth of the of the story. So Ron at the Times was in the cabinet. He was Secretary of State for Wales. 
quite a sort of quite an operator politically. And the police were really embarrassed. It's like a bit with the whole party gate thing. The police don't like coming into Downing Street and having to tell you stuff. They really don't. So we got Ron. We found Ron and we we got him in. And Tony, because Tony sort of sensed this might be leading to somewhere quite tricky, we phoned Richard Wilson, the cabinet secretary, and said, I think you better join this meeting. So Ron, <laughs> Ron came in and he said, we, we sat him down. And he said, so Ron, what the hell is this about? And Ron says, by the way, people who complain we'll ever talk about Wales, let's not include this as being about <laughs> Wales. This is about very strange stuff. But he was Secretary of State for Wales. And he said, look, I was, I was, I was driving up in Wales and I, I just felt I needed a bit of fresh air. So I, I go out on Clapham Common, I get a bit of fresh air. I meet this guy, he seemed like quite a nice guy. And he said, you want to go, he said, do you want to go for a curry? I said, yeah, I like curry, let's go for a curry. So, <laughs> So we're sort of saying, so what did, where was your red box? Where were your papers? Oh, well, they were in my car. I left my car. No, I made a ticket the box with me in his car. I can't remember the detail. This is like 24 <laughs> hours earlier this happened. So then he goes off. He goes, it's a, and I know I can read Tony Blair's face like a book. I know Tony has decided very, very early. This is toast. And so we have the chat. He digs himself deeper and deeper and deeper. And then eventually Tony says, Alistair, I think you better go back to, to the Welsh office with Ron and talk this over and see where we get to. I go over there, at which time there are two policemen waiting to talk to him. And, um, and he asked me to sit with him. I think he thought I was going to kind of... <laughs> so I sat and listened to this just... Like a sort of lawyer sitting with him in the, in the I don't know room. what it was. And then eventually, yeah. Yeah. I remember as well, he phoned up his wife and he sort of said, oh, I've just had a chat with, I just had a chat with Tony and something might be on the news coming up, but just want you to know, there's nothing to worry about. And, you know, <laughs> anyway, two hours later, it's sort of whoosh breaking news. Cabinet minister resides over. And here's the thing, Rory, I bet you've never heard of Dennis Wise, have you? No. Dennis Wise, 98% of our listeners know that Dennis Wise was a very, very, very good, quite dirty footballer. And that weekend... He had been sent off for something or other. And in his after-match interview, he said, I don't know what happened. It was a moment of madness. So as I'm talking to Ron, who we get John Sargent to do a pulled interview, yeah. and Ron says, what do you think I should say? And I said, Ron, I just think you should say it was a moment of madness. <laughs> and he went out, and that was his line. And if you remember, he wrote on, he wrote on, the, um, he wrote on his hand, sorry. Amazing. And he kept looking at his hand, oh, right, I must say right. sorry. That's why he kept looking at his hands and say, sorry. Yeah. Oh, it was awful. But listen, honestly, this lot, if that happened to this lot, they'd say, oh, we're having an investigation. Sue Gray's going to be inquiring, and then we'll have a parliamentary, da, 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 and let's, now it's time to move on. But what's extraordinary about what you heard today from Simon McDonald, and you, you, you must have worked with Simon McDonald. Yeah, I know Simon very well, yeah, yeah. I mean, Simon's a really, I mean, he's sort of totally straight, yeah. and he's just very, very proper. He believes yeah. in public service, yeah. And, yeah. And, and, and he was absolutely devastating this morning he did a very calm quiet interview where he basically set out the facts and just says Downing Street are not telling the truth Johnson was directly informed of this and they just keep changing their story but Simon was the permanent section the foreign he was permanent secretary then and he was he's now retired and he said that you know for somebody like me to come out of retirement to say this is, is I think it indicates just how how strongly people feel about what's been happening inside the government. But this is always going to happen with Johnson. You it's, know it's, that and I know so, that. So the Simon MacDonald thing is fascinating. I obviously, he was our permanent secretary, so the senior civil servant in the department when uh, I was the Minister of State and Boris Johnson was the foreign secretary. So I saw a loss of, loss of him. And he spent an enormous amount of time kind of walking around with Boris Johnson. And it was fascinating watching the body language because clearly, as you say, Simon MacDonald very, very proper, almost kind of old-fashioned type of foreign office diplomat, been in, I guess, 35 years by then. 
and very grand. I mean, the, the senior civil servants office in the foreign office is the same size as the foreign secretary. It's this enormous kind of palace he lives in. And I couldn't quite work out. He was always walking around behind Boris Johnson, laughing at his jokes and sort of backing him up. And I found it very difficult to put a cigarette paper between them. He was very loyal to Boris Johnson, as I guess mm. he had to be as the permanent secretary. And I'd get very frustrated with it. I mean, I remember these meetings where Boris Johnson, you know, would sit in our meetings, we'd say, somebody's got to go to the treasury and get us some money because the core budget of the foreign office in those days, and this was partly inherited from Labour, it actually begun to be cut heavily under people like David Miliband, but it, the core budget of the foreign office was half that of the French foreign service. Very, very difficult for us to do our business. And Boris Johnson get very angry at the table, saying, nobody's giving me any briefings. Nobody's telling me what I'm supposed to say to the Treasury. When I was London mayor, people would give me a proper piece of paper and I could go into the meetings and I knew what to say. So I and Simon McDonald would try to say very patiently, well, look, we have given you things, but you want us to run through it again. These are the facts and figures. This is the lack of money. And Boris Johnson getting very, very frustrated again. But I suppose what I'm guessing to is it's very, very interesting seeing Simon McDonald now coming out because at the time... Mm. Whenever I tried to take him aside and say, Boris Johnson's going mad, he's letting us down, why on earth he's sending me to Africa when I don't know anything about Africa, Sam McDonald would defend Boris Johnson to the hilt. Mm. That's interesting, because, I, but it is very difficult for these civil servants, I mean, because they, they do, in the main, you get the occasional one who thinks, well, I know better than the minister, and they have a little bit of a power struggle. But in the main, they are civil servants. They work to the minister. And they do tend to defend them. And, you know, I worked with, with Simon over all sorts of really difficult, sensitive issues where there were maybe sort of a bit of a difference between Number 10 and the Foreign Office or other parts of government. But I think he always did see his job as trying to kind of reconcile, try to bring people together. I remember when he was ambassador, he was ambassador in Berlin when the embassy moved from Bonn to Berlin. I remember seeing him there. I think I was, I think I'd left by then, but I went over and I was seeing people in Merkel's outfit and, and, and and Simon was just so, he'd really immersed himself. He was incredibly well informed. He really worked hard. He really had the detail about the job that he was doing. And I suspect that's what in the end has driven him to the edge with this, because he knows this is how Johnson operates. But I think he now sees that it's it's doing damage on a scale way worse than he could even do at the Foreign Office. And that's why he feels the need to, to speak out as he has. Listen, um, one thing that we, we were going to talk about to, to move off the subject of Chris Pincher and his um, his alleged Pincher raping. by name, Pincher by nature, according to Boris Johnson. And actually, sorry, just on that for a second, one of the things that is different between the story and Ron Davis is that he came out immediately, didn't he? He, he immediately, the next morning, issued a letter saying, I screwed up, I'm resigning, which I guess- Same immediate- day, same right. day. Which, from a media management point of view, I guess is what you would have wanted if Absolutely. a whip had, well, had done that. The, the, the principle at stake here is if you can't defend it, then he has to go. And I found it absolutely impossible to defend this story about, you know, I yeah. met a bloke and he was a nice yeah. guy. We went for a curry and, you know, <laughs> I left my red paint, I left my red box in the car. And no, it wasn't, there wasn't any gay sex going on and blah, de, blah, de, blah, de, blah. But, you know, I might have had a few liaisons. No, I don't know. I can't remember all that stuff. You yeah. just know. Whereas the, whereas the instinct of Johnson is always to cover up, yeah. always to tell a new set of lies, because ultimately he needs these people to prop him up. He needs people like Dominic Raab and Nadine Dorries who will say absolutely anything that he tells them to. And the other thing, Rory, about this, you know, the Conservative Party is coming over 
like, I mean, there's so many of these sex scandals going on. Groping. Yeah. We had the Wakefield by-election because of sexual abuse. And, it, and have you noticed as well how they call it, they call it inappropriate behaviour? Huh. Like it's sort of inappropriate, it's sexual assault that we're talking about. But inappropriate behaviour sounds like, you know, you sort of knocked in, not, you fell over and hit somebody. So do you want to talk about, do you, do you want to talk about Labour and Brexit? I can feel you gagging yeah. to get onto that. Go, go on, Labour and Brexit. Yeah. So I really want to know where you are on this. So actually, we've been back and forth on this a lot. Tony Blair, during this conference that we did last week, uh, basically said Brexit is is over. That discussion's over for a generation. And that got a really angry response, I think, from Will Hutton in The Observer. And I'd, I'd, let's let's start with that. Do you think Brexit is over for a generation? Do you think Tony Blair's right about that? Um, no, I don't. And also, I'm not convinced that that's what he deep down believes. I think he feels that politically at the moment, for the Labour Party to say our big mission for the future is to reverse the decision of the referendum is very, very difficult for Keir Starmer. Um, deep down, though, I think Tony, who, as you saw from the conference and from our podcast, indeed, which gave us record listening figures last week, by the way, Roy. Um, what, but what you saw is he's somebody who really thinks about detail and about strategy, about consequence. And I think he knows that at some stage, this country is going to have to fundamentally revisit its relationship with the European Union, definitely think about getting back into the single market and the customs union, and at some point, probably reverse the whole damn thing. Um, and to be honest, that's where I am as well. That is yeah. where I am. I can probably be more open about it because I'm not a member of the Labour yeah. Party. Um, I was very disappointed by, by Keir's speech, but I understand why he made it in the way that he did. He's not going to like, I haven't written the piece, but he's not going to like the front page of the New European this week. What they, are our they are our sponsors. It's basically, it's, you know, you know the, the picture of, the, of the, the snakes of lorries going down towards the channel oh, tunnel yeah, 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 yeah. With, these, with these three flying pigs coming <laughs> over the top. And it's saying, you know, I'm going to make Brexit work. And the thing is that we talk about politics wanting to be in the real world. In the real world, everybody now knows that Brexit is taking an enormous chunk off our economy. That's got to be addressed. That has to be addressed. Let, let me let me try to find a middle ground here. So I agree with you. Obviously, I voted Remain and uh, I did so presumably for many of the same reasons that you and many other people did. However, if it's happened and if all the major parties have said they're going to go with it and if Keir Starmer said he's going to make the best of it, I guess there is an argument that you can make that we all understand that you can end up with a second best option and then you still try to make the best of it. You don't get the house that you wanted to buy. You don't get the cards. You want to make the best of it. So I guess it is kind of the responsibility of these people now to try to make the best of it and try to look at it positively. And there's not, if we're going to be in outside Europe for the next 20 years, there's not much point just spending the whole time saying it's a disaster, there are no benefits to it at all. We must be able to think of something to do with it, right? Well, I thought that what was, for me, I have been sort of nagging and agitating for a while. At, at the very least, please start calling out the disasters that it's, it's inflicting upon us. Be that in relation to red tape, be that in relation to the queues at Dover, be that in relation, this is the one, as you know, that really gets to be the impact upon the Good Friday Agreement and the peace process. All of these things have to be fixed. I think this is what Tony was saying at your conference. This, all of these things have to be fixed and they're not being fixed by the government. And at least the Labour Party is stepping up and saying, we have to fix these things. I get that. And I think thus far, okay. 
But there's a very interesting letter. I, as, as you know, Rory, I have massive attention to, to detail. I do look at the letters in the New European before they go in. And there's a letter in that's going in this week. Keir Starmer has ruled out returning to the single market. Therefore, I'm ruling out voting for Labour. He has to understand. It goes back to the discussion we had last about Peter Kellner's polling. He has to understand there are some people for whom what he said this week will make it impossible for them to vote Labour. He has to understand that. So there was quite a good article by William Hague. Uh, in which he tried to see, so he starts by saying he voted Remain. And then he tries to see what you could do if you were a leader trying to look at Brexit opportunities. So he points out, for example, that there is much more that we could be doing on food and plant checks. And that is something that is likely to cause a problem. There are serious diseases. I'm looking out my window. I'm talking to you in Scotland. I have a, a cherry disease, which almost certainly came from trees that were imported from Spain. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there will be many other types of management of plants and animal disease that we would be able to do more easily outside the European Union than we were able to do in. He talked about the fact that there are regulatory freedoms which we could pursue. And if you wanted to make a positive case, the insurance industry, for example, was very interested in certain kinds of deregulation. There are stuff he thinks you could do on gene editing, on AI. And I guess his question is, why has... Boris Johnson's government been so slow to try to think of what these opportunities are? Because that's not how they're thinking. That's not how they're thinking, is it? Jacob Rees-Mogg, and I don't know if you've watched any of Jacob Rees-Mogg's performance at the dispatch box. They're just embarrassing. I don't think they're thinking in those terms. They're just thinking it's all about a a propaganda game, a news management game. And we saw that this week. The minute Keir Starmer opened his mouth, this avalanche of social media stuff from the Conservatives. You know, this is the man who tried to get you a second referendum. This is the man who voted against Brexit, whatever number they've made up on that. So I don't think that's how they're taking it. And that's where I think Keir could get some political mileage out of saying, we are going to fix the problems. But I think making Brexit work, you know, I, I agree with you. Yes, you can say, let's make the best of a, let's try and make the best of a very bad job. But make Brexit work sounds to me like they're saying it can work. When actually, deep down, they don't believe it can. They don't believe it can be done without doing fundamental damage to our economy, to our standing in the world. And look, Rory, you and I talk a lot about foreign policy. You know from your travels, Brexit has, you can't quantify this, but Brexit has knocked a very large chunk off our soft and hard power standings in the world. That's terrible. Fix it. How does this position help Labour get votes? What's what's the play devil's advocate against yourself? If you were sitting in Keir Starmer's team, why has he made this call and what will their calculation be? I guess the calculation will be that the Conservatives are determined. By the way, I, I read a very interesting polling by the Byline Times have done, which suggests that actually Brexit, in terms of the political debate now, people like me who are on the kind of, you know, very angry about Brexit side. Brexit as a political issue means a lot more to us now than it does to those on the Leave side, a majority of whom are now seeing it as going wrong. The Daily Mail ran, you know, one of the classic pieces yesterday, one of your favourite type of pieces. And there was a big paragraph in there saying, we need Boris Johnson because Tony Blair and his centrist conference and all his friends are trying to undo Brexit. And we need to keep Boris Johnson in to stop them undoing Brexit. Rory, I wish that were true. But as you, as, I wish that were true. I don't, I think too many people have given up the fight. Um, so I don't see it happening anytime soon. 
I think we can have an interesting discussion about what a generation means. The same discussion is currently happening in Scotland, uh, when it was once in a once in a generation change. But look, there comes a point. I just think we have to live in the real. That yes, they're living in the real politic world, where Brexit is a very difficult, divisive issue. But in the real world, a country and a government that has taken a substantial chunk of its economy and therefore the impact upon public services and the standing in the world. And the other thing, Rory, we've talked so far in this podcast about the fact that Johnson's a liar. Well, we all know that Brexit was won by lies. And that I think that should be pointed out continuously as well. On that, I think it's time for our break. <laughs> Thank you, Alistair. You were probably signing your own death warrant. Well, probably, but I'd moved into damage limitation mode. Who killed Liz Truss? I'm Robert Peston from The Rest Is Money, and we've been telling the story of the worst financial crisis faced by a British government for 50 years. The consequence of the catastrophic mini-budget. And now I'm talking to the Prime Minister at that time of extreme chaos, Liz Truss. Over the course of two episodes, I ask her what she knew and when, how much responsibility she takes for the crisis, who she blames, and of course, who killed Liz Truss. Listen to The Rest is Money now, wherever you get your podcasts. Right, today's episode of The Rest is Politics is sponsored by The New European. Um, and I, of course, lots in the paper this week about Labour, Keir Starmer, the post-Brexit position. Uh, I don't think Keir, as I said earlier, he's not going to like the front, front page too much. But Rory, what do you, you know, in a nutshell, what did you think of what Keir was trying to do? Well, of course, the thing that made me saddest is ruling out the customs union. I think mm. that is the most straightforward, least controversial way of addressing a lot of our economic worries. Customs union, just to remind people, means not free, to, free movement. So it would still have immigration controls, but it would integrate us much more easily into the European markets and deal with a lot of the problems we're facing in Northern Ireland. I mean, Matt Kelly, the editor, did ask me to write the front page piece um, lambasting Labour. But as you know, Rory, I find that quite difficult to do. So <laughs> Zoe Williams of The Guardian has, has stepped in. And she's basic, her basic point, I think, is that there's not that much difference between Starmer ruling out rejoining um, and, and, and Johnson boasting about an oven-ready deal. He, she finds them both sort of, you know, unrealistic. Um, but there we are. So that's the new European this week. And you can, can subscribe to the paper for just a pound a week. And if you like the actual paper in your hands, you get that delivered to your door every week for just an extra one pound a week. Visit www.theneweuropean.co.uk slash TRIP to sign up. They're the best deals they're offering. Exclusive rates for listeners too. The rest is politics. And now back to the show. Welcome back to The Rest is Politics with me, Rory Stewart. And me, Alistair Campbell. Right. So, Alistair, um, <laughs> I'd like to get on to speaking about global recession and stuff. Okay. Before you do, before you do, before you do, we because we went off on one about Johnson scandals and then Labour and Brexit, I just wanted to know whether you'd in any way adapted, revised or developed your opinion of my former boss, given that you spent a little, quite a lot of time with him. We talked to him on the podcast. You then went to his conference. You spoke to his conference. You saw him up close and personal. Just wondered your sort of, if there's a new take. Well, I, I think it's a really interesting, I mean, I think the first thing is I'm really, the thing that interests me most is the depth of your loyalty and affection to him is extraordinary. That's one of the things that I, I've taken away from this most strongly. And that says something probably quite positive about him. 
that he engenders that form of loyalty, right? You worked for him very, very closely and you remain clearly um, very, very devoted to him. Um, I also thought, again, on the positive, he is extraordinarily across the details. I think there are very few contemporary politicians who are able to digest a brief that well and who remain so relentlessly focused on those details or who are so articulate in responding to questions with detail. Um, I think there are other aspects in which are probably not... I mean, then there's the other stuff, of course, that I'm uh, still angry about. I mean, I think the Iraq war stuff was mad. And the more I think about it, the more cross I get about it. I also think that there's a, on the, on the other side of it, there was an interesting question that came into us from a guy called Thomas Clawton, which, so Thomas Clawton said, having listened to Tony Blair last week, should he not show much greater humility? There seemed very limited curiosity on his part for what he got wrong his role in the current crisis of legitimacy and governance, and the reaction of the populace against his post-ideological style of politics. We surely ought to have learned that a purely technological, technocratic ideas offering is unlikely to change the way people conceive of their lives and the world around them. So I've got a bit of sympathy for that, because what I did feel about the conference, with all his strengths, is that it was a bit technocratic. It was a, a surprising amount was about, you know, new tech applications in healthcare. It wasn't really, it didn't feel like a really rich, compelling political platform. And, and I wonder whether if you'd been there and you'd been in charge of running the, the campaign for a party that came out of that, a new Labour Party or whatever, whether you mightn't have agreed with me that this actually is getting a bit like a series of kind of articles in The Economist and not really something that's going to mm. win a political movement. It's interesting. I got a lot of feedback, both for the, the podcast in which I was involved and for the conference, which I didn't attend because I was away making this TV programme. And I'd say the, the, the feedback to the podcast was very interesting. The numbers were huge. We got a lot of extra people listening because it was him and we were talking to him. Um, there were some people who said, you know, up with this man, I cannot put, I will not listen to him, you know, t tell me when you don't have him on and I'll come back kind of thing, which is quite interesting because I used to get caught in the wash of all the hatred of Tony. And I still get a bit of it walking around the place, but I, I mainly get quite a lot of warmth out there. And, and to be fair, so does Tony. A lot of people read the, the thing I took, took from it was a lot of people who are not really that political, who, but who I know who sent me, I'll give you an example, Malcolm Mackay, football manager, um, sent me a message literally this morning, said, I'm on holiday, just been listening to your podcast with Tony Blair. My God, that guy's so clever. My God, that guy's so impressive. Loads of people saying, God, I wish we had a serious prime minister again. You get a lot of that, I think, from people who are not necessarily in politics. Whereas I think if you're in politics, you tend to have very, very fixed views. And a lot of people who can't stand Tony, can't stand me, whatever, they find it very, very hard to move away from that. I agree with you. I think it is a little bit, you know, we just, we talked last week when I said to him, look, you and I used to dispute the whole sort of globalization thing because I think you underestimated the impact on inequality and so forth. And likewise, I think he is a little bit starry eyed about technology and these great tech giants who come in and say, this mm. is the way we can revolutionize this, revolutionize that. But I still think, I, I, you know, the reason I'm sort of, you say, devoted, I mean, the reason why I still support him is because I think he's a phenomenal intellect. I think he really does understand the modern world. He's incredibly curious about change. And he keeps going and he keeps caring. And, you know, I think that's, in a way, it's a, it's a reflection of the failure of the current 
generation of politicians that we still are deemed to be relevant when we talk about this stuff. Uh, So how about Thomas Corton's challenge on humility, whether that he thought they didn't show, but maybe that's just the nature of being an ex-prime minister, that maybe ex-prime ministers don't. I mean, I'll be absolutely honest, Roy, there are some things that we did that, you know, sometimes when I'm, I go into a mode, I can defend every aspect of every policy because I'm in, I go back into a mode that I used to be in. And sometimes afterwards I, I say to myself, do I really think that? And I reflect on it a bit and, and sometimes I do and sometimes I don't. Mm-hmm. And I don't think maybe Tony, Tony doesn't do that. I think he stays in the mode. It doesn't mean he doesn't reflect, but he also knows that if he suddenly comes down and says, you know what, I think we got this wrong, we got that wrong, that people just sort of think, I think he thinks enough people trash his legacy without him having to do it as well, <laughs> right. put it that way. <laughs> Listen, one of the things that, I, I don't know how much it's been reported in the British press, but it's very striking. I've been talking to people on the, on the West Coast estates in the tech industry, and what's happening to tech stocks is unbelievable. So it's it's the worst moment since 2008. Amazon shares 40% below their high. Facebook Meta, 47% down. Peloton, 90% down. Netflix, 75% down. And people beginning to say that this is feeling like the bursting of the tech bubble in 2000, that this is going to involve trillions mm. wiped off mm. the value of, of these shares and with a roll-on effect right across the American economy. And I was thinking just in sort of, the odd effects that has. I mean, how much, for example, of the philanthropy in the United States is driven by these guys, that if you were running a charity that was trying to fundraise from them, you'd suddenly find yourself in a lot of trouble. Yeah. That I remember um, fundraising for a, a, I was at at Harvard running a center and I was trying to get some support from our center on human rights in 2008-9 when that crisis happened. And how you suddenly found not just that we couldn't get funding for human rights, but that the whole of Milwaukee, it's theatre closed, it's sports stadium closed, because all these guys were losing their money hand over fist. Mm, mm. I don't know whether we've begun to really think about that. And I, I guess my other thing, which I raised with with Tony Burr, and I want to keep pushing on and get you back onto is, is China. You've been, um, you've been talking about this wonderful book on Xi Jinping. I have the first copy of the translation here, Rory, and I'm going to put it in the post to you today. Thank you very much. So that's Stefan Aust, Adrian Geiger, Xi Jinping. Xi Jinping, the most yep. powerful man in the world. Brilliant. Okay, so everybody, I, I will promise to read that and everyone on the podcast should read it. Um, but I suppose what I'm getting to is we haven't begun to think about the risks of China-Taiwan. I now think that there is, let's say, a 40%, 50% chance that Xi Jinping will move against Taiwan. And paradoxically, one of the reasons he might do it, if he's going to do it, now would be a pretty good time to do it because he will sense that we are pretty shaken up by the Russia-Ukraine situation, that our economies are under enormous pressure. And he will try to gamble that we cannot afford to try to sanction China at the same time as energy prices are soaring. Mm. I think he's wrong on that. I think if he did it, we would try to sanction China. But if we sanction China and counter sanctions come back, the effects on the global economy will be beyond imagining. One of the things I took out of the, the German book is that Taiwan being reunited, as they see it, with China and under China's complete control is fundamental to, to uh, Xi Jinping's vision of, of the world, on a par with, with, uh, with Putin and Ukraine, without a doubt. And, but it's interesting, what, just, just before we go into that, it's interesting what you're saying about tech, because, you know, Kevin Rudd, the old Australian prime minister, who actually speaks Chinese, he, he's yeah. written a book, he, yeah. he, he wrote his dissertation about Xi Jinping, and he's also spoken to him for hours and hours and hours. And he's, he's now written another book called The Avoidable War. 
And he, I didn't realize, and you, you, you talk about tech. Xi, Xi has been assaulting the Chinese tech companies for, on our ideological grounds, and they have lost $2 trillion in value. And it's one of the four things that Kevin Rudd points to as to why China is not in as strong a position as, as it thought it would be. The property market, after the biggest boom in any country in, in the entirety of history, do you know that the property market in China is now worth 29% of their GDP? Amazing. 29% of, of the Chinese. Uh, now, and it's in crisis because all these sort of small flats, the sales are just, they've been stagnant for the last 12 months. And they reckon that's going to take about 1.4% off GDP. COVID and the zero COVID strategy, they reckon is taking 1.6 off it. His, for, his, his plan for growth in the current sort of plan, and when they have plans for growth, they tend to, you know, they've tended to meet them. It's 5.5. And I read something on Bloomberg the other day saying they're going to be lucky to get beyond three. So, and that is leading to, this again is from, from Rudd's book, it's leading to a sense that the economy is spluttering, the zero COVID strategy is really making that worse, and the coronation of, of Xi Jinping as president for life is provoking now quite a lot of division. So I think the Chinese situation is maybe a little bit more, a, bit, a little bit more complicated. The difficult thing with the stuff is it can cut both ways, can't it? It could be that he's in a more fragile position, so he's not going to risk going for Taiwan. But it can, of course, work the other way. You get in yeah, a more fragile sure. position and you're looking for a way to bolster your reputation, get a nationalist move doing shut down your opponents and you do it. And I just wanted to really just sort of dig into this because I still think it is the biggest single story. If we're looking at the next five, 10 years, the one thing that will change our lives as we know it, because China is obviously where the solar panels are made. China is where wind turbines are made. 50% of all the profits of many of the major European companies are made in China. And Taiwan is where 50% of the semiconductors are made. It is going to be beyond imagining. I mean, I, I keep trying to say this, that Russia has a sort of 1% relevance for companies, but mm. China for many companies has a sort of 50% yeah. relevance. And so I, I really think all these international conferences are not yet talking enough about China. Totally agree with that. I've, I've been reading up on this new aircraft carrier they've got. Yeah, um, go on. Well, it's, it's called the Fujian. And the reason it's called the Fujian, I suspect, is because Fujian is the province in China that is closest to Taiwan. So it's quite a provocative name <laughs> of, of, a, of a new aircraft carrier. They now have, the Chinese Navy now has more ships and submarines than the American Navy. Now, it's true that the Americans, have, they have 11 aircraft carriers to China's three. But this one is on a par with the best of the, the Americans. And it's got these new sort of mega catapult um, devices to get the get the planes off the ship um and there's a slogan on the side of the ship and this again relates back to the book because the book is full of of um basically xi jinping wants to re wants the american dream to fail and he talks about the china dream and he's got the china dream and on the side of the ship it says that this is part of the realization of china's dream of a strong military it's eighty thousand tons it's totally domestically designed and built whereas the previous two aircraft carriers were were, were based on soviet technology. And meanwhile, they the other thing I've discovered recently, they've just expanded a naval base in Djibouti. They've just acquired a huge port in Sri Lanka in exchange for a debt swap going over a, a hundred years. And they're also developing this new port in Pakistan. I mean, they are on the move militarily 
Big style. You're absolutely right. We don't talk about this nearly enough. And, and just, just on that for a second, I mean, the, the, you're right that the Americans have more aircraft carriers, but of course, Taiwan is very, very close to China, so close that they can actually fire easily medium range land based missiles. Yeah. You know, 10,000 of them actually straight yeah. into Taiwan. Whereas the Americans would have to move their stuff from Guam, which is three days sailing away and would be very, very vulnerable. So, it, it, it is very difficult to imagine how there are any real military options. Mm. And when you look at people like Britain, I mean, we, we talk about wanting to be ready for these wars, but recent calculations, I believe, is that if we were to fire our artillery at the rate at which the Russians have been firing them, Britain would be out of artillery shells in two days. I know. Well, we, I, I, saw, I saw a senior military guy the other day who was saying that he, he even within the European Union it's very if we were to go to <laughs> he was sort of going around the countries and he was he said yeah we'd win against Luxembourg we'd win against Ireland we'd definitely win against Malta but he was, <laughs> he was saying you know we people are underestimating that you know our, our military today compared to what it was 10 15 20 years ago one of the problems is is the army i mean the army and the infantry in particular is tiny i mean it's yeah. the smallest it's almost ever been and part of the issue is recruitment yeah it's it's been very difficult really for i suppose nearly 20 years to recruit people properly into the infantry and mm. at the moment they're saying there isn't a problem but that's just because they've massively reduced the size of the army they're Cutting it down to sort of seventy thousand people. Yeah, you could fit you could fit the entire army inside um, inside Old Trafford. It's extraordinary, absolutely yeah. extraordinary. Yeah. yeah. The other thing in Rudd's book, by the way, he he, he talks about um, he he points to these four things that he thinks are really making China a bit edgier than people realise. One is the property boom collapsing that I mentioned. The second is this sort of two trillion hit on the tech companies, and then he does actually think that Ukraine. Um, is hitting China much, much harder than people realize because they are the biggest energy importer in the world. Um, and then the, 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 the fourth thing is COVID. They've lost three, three, they've had 373 million people locked down in 45 cities, which are responsible for 4% of That's their complete, GDP. It's completely mad. And, and the mm. Chinese are very, very angry about these COVID lockdowns yeah. because, you know, my sense on COVID is that Boris Johnson should have shut down much sooner, but that once people had been vaccinated, it was no longer credible to keep locking down. And the fact that yeah. China is still trying to pursue a zero COVID policy mm. is mad. Mm. Just so, I don't know why, but it just popped into my head. I know we probably should pr promote our own podcast rather than everybody else's. But first of all, people if people want to see a lighter side of the discussion of our podcast, they should go to Chatterbix where the two Ricky Gervais sidekicks who very briefly knocked us from the number one spot. I put them in their place, Rory. Yeah, and but the, the, the risk is you're promoting them up again, Alistair. And That's then fine, be because again. No, we've, they're, we, they're, not, they're, not, they're not coming back anytime soon. Don't worry about them. But the other thing is Tortoise have done this absolutely brilliant series about, they call it London Grad, but it's basically about Johnson and Lebedev. And I honestly, we talked about the scandals earlier, how Lebedev, is not permanently a huge story in our politics. You should listen to this, Rory. It will make you even angrier about Johnson than you already are. Well, I think, I mean, I've encountered a bit of this. So he's obviously, Lebedev is particularly personally angry with me because I, on the podcast, uh, remembered the story where we all got invited over to Lake Cuomo to stay with yeah. him when Boris Johnson was foreign secretary. And what I've realised from the personal anger against me and the way that ex-colleagues have responded is the way in which power can be exercised, it's not new to anyone, but the guy 
owns the Evening Standard. He's been a major donor, not just to the party, but to many individuals. And even when he isn't supporting individuals, they think he might in the future. That's the point about being, I guess, mm. a very wealthy person. And he's also into lion conservation and environmental projects that people care about. So it's very, um, you know, it, it just reinforces my basic idea that we should move away from a position in which the trade unions fund labor and these rich people fund the conservatives. Totally agree. But there's, you know, Fiona's listened to the whole thing and she was saying that this story about how Johnson, as foreign secretary, got rid of all his officials, all his protection officers, and went and spent time with this guy, with the dad, who's a KGB agent. And it does make you think whether they're sort of using it, the thing to get him into sort of compromising positions, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, let's not go back to Johnson. He's a sort of revolting. Give us, give us Elvis. Give us Elvis. Well, Elvis, I've, do you love Elvis, Rory? I do love Elvis, but not as deeply no, do you as you. Love You're him a much, lot? No, not as much as you. I, I'm going to get in trouble on this. You're a much more musical man than me, Alistair. I love Elvis. And the film, the new Baz Luhrmann film, it's a little bit pretentious at times. But the guy who plays Elvis, uh, Austin Butler, who's a, an, an Australian guy, and Tom Hanks plays Colonel Tom Parker. But there is a very, very strong political element to the thing. There's three things going on. The first is the whole race thing. You know, a lot of people really didn't like Elvis because he was a kind of, they saw him as a white guy singing black people's music at times. And that race thing is going on. And then the whole Elvis, the pelvis thing. I mean, you just forget that Elvis was seen as like a massive threat to the moral order of the United States of America. Because of the hip see, movement. Because of the hip movements. And the, <laughs> the actor does them so well. And when you see the, you know, the knickers being thrown and the bras being thrown and all that. But then there's the thing about powerful men wanting to manipulate weaker people. And, and, and Elvis's family comes over as quite weak. And Tom Parker is manipulating Elvis. And, and I actually think, you know, should take some responsibility for his very, very early demise. But then the thing that literally had me in tears at the end was Elvis dies. I, I hope that doesn't spoil the ending of the film, but Elvis does <laughs> die. No, 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 wait, wait, he's still alive, Alistair. It's from in Berkhamstead recently. <laughs> <laughs> no, he's the most. He's got more impersonators than anybody on the planet. But he 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 dies, and what they do over the over the the scenes of the death and the funeral and the and the mourning and all that is they play Jimmy Carter's tribute to him, which is so moving. It's so moving. And if you want to see a fantastic documentary about a fantastic politician, check out the Rock and Roll President. Jimmy Carter loves music, and some of his closest <laughs> friends. Bob Dylan was a close friend. Seriously, Bob but, Dylan but, was but, a close friend. But, but but Jimmy Carter, I mean, if you had been his comms director, you would have been enraged. He was the most hopeless president, right? I mean, he may have done good stuff since he left. He may have become a national icon, but he was really inept. Well, he, look, I, I don't – he wasn't he, he wasn't <laughs> was the Lincoln League, I'll give you that. But I'll tell you, Rory, I, this programme I'm doing, Make Me Prime Minister – I, I gave the, a few tips to some of the candidates the other day. And one of them, I said, read books, not newspapers, listen to music, not the news. And I really believe that you learn more from books than papers and music is, and Jimmy Carter, he was obsessed with rhythm and blues, gospel, soul, rock. And these guys, honestly, there are pictures of him and Willie Nelson. There's a hilarious story about Willie Nelson went into the White House. And Willie Nelson wrote in his biography that he was smoking dope in there with one of the stewards. And Jimmy Carter revealed that wasn't true because actually he was smoking dope with his son. <laughs> so honestly, it's a great documentary and, and, and you'll, you'll love it. So, so the other thing that's happened... You don't week, like music enough, Rory. I've noticed this. You, you're not into music enough. 
Yeah, and of course, not also not into sport enough. No, music is the language of the soul. And while we're on sport, Rory, tell me three differences between rugby league and rugby union. Okay, so uh, rugby league, uh, 13 players, rugby union, 15. Good. Uh, different different scoring, five points for a try in rugby union. I want to say <laughs> three points in rugby league. Well, you're allowed one mistake, but carry on. And I think when you are tackled uh, in rugby league, you kick the ball back in a chicken scratch. And in rugby union, you get to ruck on the ground. <laughs> right. So you've looked at Wikipedia because I told you I was going to raise <laughs> the deep Dorries. If you were secretary, if you'd ever been secretary of state for culture, media and sport, and you were speaking at a conference of rugby league professionals <laughs> about the rugby league World Cup. Do you think you would have said that your greatest moment in rugby league memories was Johnny Wilkinson's drop goal to win the World Cup? No, I do think there is a point here, which is there's a point about briefing yourself up. I think it's it's acceptable that politicians don't know everything. So Nadine Doris, working class woman, not very interested. She doesn't come from a rugby league area of the country. But you're absolutely right. If you get one of these jobs and you're going to one of those conferences, you've got to brief yourself up. She did say when she got the job that she was a big fan of rugby league. Obviously, a lie. Um, <laughs> no, I thought that was incredible. You know, with speech, you know how many spe- how many hand speeches go through. Do you know the other thing it said to me? I think it means she's surrounded by a team that wants her to fail. That nobody said to her, you can't mention Johnny Wilkinson. You can't do that. <laughs> OK, listen, very, very briefly. I, I want to pay tribute to Peter Brook. Yep. Peter Brook, amazing theatre director, um, extraordinary, brought Theatre of the Cruelty, did these incredible performance of Marassad, nudity on the great stages, National Theatre and the RSC, nine-hour performance of Mahabharata, moved to France in the 70s, but the great icon of British theatre. And, and the reason we want to remember him today is it was said about him that apart from sport, almost anything interests him. Ah, oh, very good. Well, the reason we want to remember him is that he's just died. I think we should make that clear as well. But, you, you, but Rory, I've got, I'm going to get you interested in sport. You, but you've also get to, you've got to get into music more, really. I've read your friend's Mozart book, by the way. I enjoyed thank it. Thank you. Thank you for doing it. Patrick Mackey, Mozart in Motion. Highly recommend to people. Quite, quite used. What did you think about the book? I, I, I enjoyed it. I found it quite dense at times. And, and it's, but what I love about it is it does sort of capture something about the creative process. And I, I'm obsessed with genius and creative process. And of course, Mozart was a genius. And that's, that's why he sent it to you. I think he heard you on ABBA and he, he thought you'd love it. Right. I think we've come to the end of our show. I think we have. And we're doing question time tomorrow. Question time tomorrow. Thank you very much, everybody.